This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Our first symposium presentation will be given by Roger Ains and Kim Mayfield. Roger Ains is the Energy Program Chief Scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Lab, and Kim Mayfield is a staff scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. Their presentation is entitled Carbon Dioxide at Scale, uh, Working Fast for an Equitable Future. Why are we here talking about carbon sequestration? It's partly about economics, it's, it's partly about the job future, but it's really about this picture. It's about a planet that we all want to live on. And the choices that we have to make in order to have the environment and the climate that we all want to have. And so as you hear the things that we're talking about today, there's always this economic overlay. But, but we want to think about this. And, and the fact is that this future is achievable. We can do this. And the things that you're going to hear about today can deliver that future. And Kern County can be a leader in, deliver, in making that delivery. I'm going to spend a moment talking. This is the only graph you'll see from me. Where you, how about you, Kim? No. Uh, <laughs> um, talk in general terms about what the problem is globally, worldwide. What are we trying to achieve? Well, we all know that our, our emissions have been gradually increasing. That rate has slowed dramatically in the past decade, let's say. But we're still rising. We still we rose last year, rather significantly last year. And in order to hit the climate future that we all want, that we've all agreed to, which is something between a, a temperature increase of one and a half and two degrees C. I say something between because, frankly, one and a half degrees is so hard you wouldn't believe it. But two degrees C may be easier. Um, that we have to reduce our emissions to zero. And we talk about net zero. And this graph that came out with the very recent IPCC report, you haven't seen this because it's that new, um, basically points to a, an approximate net zero date later in this century, 2060, 2070. You'll notice there are no axes, uh, no, on the, no, no y-axis on this, because when you run all the different scenarios, you discover that there's a whole lot of pathways that can take us to a future quickly or slowly, one that involves a lot of carbon sequestration, one that doesn't. And the answer is, we don't know what those things look like yet. So we're all here to figure that out. But in general, we do know that we're going to need to decrease our emissions dramatically and that those emissions are not going to go to zero. Why are they not going to go to zero? Well, agriculture. Agriculture is really hard. Nitrous oxide. Are we going to stop fertilizing our fields? I don't think so. So there are things that we just can't scrub out of the system. Some methane emissions. Even if we completely stopped using fossil fuels, we'd still have those emissions. But it's unlikely that we're going to completely stop using fossil fuels. So there are always going to be these gross emissions that you see above that line of net zero. And yet what the models tell us, the climate models tell us very clearly is that we have to get to zero if we're going to hit this temperature future that we want. And so we're going to have to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Now, even though this is a broadly written carbon sequestration forum here, at Livermore, we're very focused on this question of how do we clean up the air? How do we remove CO2 from the air because of the size of the problem? In 
2050, 2060, we're going to have to be removing something like five to 10 billion tons of carbon dioxide per year in order to hit that future. That's twice the size of today's global oil industry. And I don't know if you've gone around and looked, but that industry doesn't exist yet. (laughs) I'm sure many of you are working hard to make it happen, but this is a huge lift. This is something that we all have to work very hard to get to, and we need to start now. The fact that we need to hit net zero sometime in the middle of the century doesn't mean we can create two global oil industries in a couple of years. We can't. We're going to have to work hard on it. So I'm going to break Tony's first rule right now and and ask for questions about this because it's so central to the rest of the things that we're doing. Are there, there any questions that people have about this framing of the problem? Yes, everything would be in CO2 equivalents. And if, if you look in the, in the actual IPCC report, you'll find 100 versions of pathways that have actual numbers on them. So about six years ago, we looked at that graph and said, wow, that's impossible. We better start now. And at a national lab, that's the kind of thing that we do. We look at these giant problems and say, what is the path for the nation? What does, the, the, does everybody need to do together? And what can we do individually at our laboratory? What are the things that we're good at that will contribute to this problem? And you're going to hear about two of those three things that we chose here today. Uh, Jennifer Petridge, otherwise known as JP, you'll hear me call her JP, uh, leads our soil carbon effort. Why is a national lab working on soil carbon? We're kind of a defense-oriented or, organization. Well, we're very engaged in carbon-14 measurements, and it turns out carbon-14 is exactly what you need to understand soil carbon. And so JP's group has been deeply engaged in the science of soil carbon for a long time. The second thing that we've been working on, the very first thing that I ever did 25 years ago in in the first carbon projects that we had at Livermore is geologic storage. Now that's led by George Paredes. George, where are you? Ah, There is. Thank you, George. Um, We need geologic storage because, frankly, there's just too much CO2 in the air already. And then it's all that we continue to emit. And we need to do something with it. And the answer is it's going to have to go underground. And I'll just cut to the chase on that answer. And a lot of audiences, I might have to develop that a little better. But I think you all understand it's going to have to go underground. And so we're going to talk a little bit about those topics today. But certainly, Jennifer and, and uh, George are here to answer questions for you. The third thing that we're, we're doing at the lab that I won't talk about today is making carbon products from directly from CO2. Um, often when I'm lecturing at this point, I point to your feet and say you're, you're standing on carpet made out of uh, uh, oil, but I believe this is linoleum made out of oil. Um, <laughs> but the answer is that we use an enormous a number of carbon products in our life, and we're not gonna stop using those products, including Uh, some fuels, and understanding how to make those without making them out of oil, without making them out of fossil carbon is going to be very important. And we're focused as well on that problem at the lab. Love to talk to you or have you visit, see about that in the future. Soil carbon. Our take on soil carbon is that it's really not that hard to increase the soil, the carbon content of soil, but it is not a permanent storage mechanism. It's constantly cycling. Soil is alive. 
and good soil, a farmer, any farmer knows that good soil is rich soil, it's very carbon rich soil. And the question is, how do we get that carbon into the soil to encourage good agriculture, to encourage good water retention? And one of the things that, that JP has been very focused on is the idea of using plants that are perennial plants instead of annual plants, so that they add carbon to the soil instead of extracting carbon from the soil every year. And this is one of her field plots where we're comparing on the same soil, a ryegrass on the left and a switchgrass on the right, which are hopefully performing the same service. And the answer is that in general, the deeply rooted perennials are much better at restoring carbon to the soil. And this is not a surprise. The soil, the great American soils of the Midwest that are so carbon rich and so productive today that, that those corn soils in Iowa, those were built by deeply rooted perennial plants that stored carbon in the soil for millennia. And that there's an opportunity to replace that today, either as crops or as simply ways to manage land, which I think is gonna be an issue here in Kern County. But I think that the most important thing that this, there was maybe the focus here, maybe not the most important, uh, everybody, everybody who's interested in soil carbon storage should really talk to JP. Um, the geologic storage is going to be incredibly important here in Kern County. Why is that? We did a study a few years ago called Getting to Neutral. And that study was aimed at understanding how California could reach its net neutral goal in 2045. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But one of the things we did was to say, if we need to remove 100 or 125 million tons of CO2 a year from the state the air, I mean, the whole world's air, but the air that the state is responsible for, 125 million tons, where are we going to put it? What are we going to do with it? And the answer is, it needs to go underground. And the second part of that answer is, we are blessed with great storage. And we looked at two areas that are particularly well-suited. The Delta region, which unfortunately in this slide, the, the Delta is on top of Kern County. I apologize for erasing part of Kern County. Um, and, and Kern County, because those, those are the places that have had big oil and gas infrastructure. They understand, and mostly... The data is there. It's when you lose your keys and you look underneath the street light because that's where the light is. We looked where the data is. And what we discovered is in detail, we looked at every field, every oil field, because that's where the data is, right? The oil fields. And, and discovered there's more than enough geologic storage space in California to store all of our future emissions, all of our ambitions. It's really easy to do. But this map is the single most influential uh, slide I've ever presented at meetings. Why is that? Because it turned out to look like a map to gold mines. <laughs> when people look at this map, you see the red, and the red are, are areas that don't meet the regulated, regulatory standards. You can't legally do geologic storage in those areas. Yellow are maybe all right, but there's reasons that we think you need to resolve that they're, they're, they can be done properly there. Green are areas that clearly meet all the regulatory standards. And California has the strictest standards in the world. So if we say that meets the regulatory standards here, then we're pretty comfortable it's going to be safe storage. And there's an enormous amount of it just in those two small areas that we looked at. We found the ability to store 17 gigatons of carbon dioxide just in those areas. And we're not talking in the oil fields, but mostly under and around the oil fields. It's in the same rocks that held oil for millions of years. And so we're quite comfortable that it's gonna hold CO2 for millions of years as well. Second thing that's really important about geologic storage in these areas is that it's the same 
jobs. It's the same people. It's the same lunch trucks. It's the same drill rigs. This, these two areas are ready to do this job today, and they're ready to do it well and safely. And the communities understand what these jobs look like and, and what the, the overall task looks like. So this is the primary reason that we're here, that we're focused on Kern County, is because this is where the storage is, and this is where California is going to first store CO2. I mentioned that report that we did called Getting to Neutral. I encourage you all to take a look at it because I spent a lot of time on it. I want people to read it. Um, our goal there was to say how much CO2 would we need to, well, we kind of asserted how much we need to re remove for, C for California to meet its goal. There were some preliminary answers and the state is currently, the Air Board is currently doing a reassessment of exactly how much removals the state needs to meet a goal of net zero by 2045. And that number is going to be between 80 and 100 million tons a year. For safety, we said, how would we get 125 million tons? How would we build a supply curve for removals that would get to 125 million tons? The first thing we look for is natural solutions. It's very important to engage nature to do this. And there's all kinds of other benefits from increasing forestation or increasing soil carbon, as I mentioned. And on average, these tend to be relatively inexpensive solutions. In this chart, the average is about $11 a ton, over 25 million tons of capacity in California. A couple of things about that 25 million ton number. First of all, it assumes everything goes well. And if you've noticed the fire season, things aren't going well. So that's a problem. We, if we want to, ref we're going to store carbon in forests. We need to keep those forests from burning. Um, the second thing is that even with everything going as well as it possibly can, we can only find 25 million tons. And believe me, we were generous. Why is that? Why can California not do more natural storage per year? Well, first of all, we never deforested California, like Tennessee. We didn't cut down all our forests and can't let them grow back. Now, we're basically pretty similar to what we've always been. Um, second thing is our soils are not naturally carbon rich, and we can double the amount of carbon in them and not come anywhere near what Iowa's soils have. So the, the natural solutions aren't as effective in California. There isn't as much capacity. And I like to think it's because we've taken pretty good care of our nature here. But that means that today we can't rely on them for a huge part of the answer. We need to do that 25 million tons. We need to get that but it's not gonna solve the entire problem. At the far end of the graph, on the right-hand side of the graph, you're gonna see direct air capture. This is the darling of, of legislators and technologists and, and frankly, rooms like this around the world. Why is direct air capture so popular? Because it solves the problem that is. It's really simple. There's too much CO2 in the air, take it out, okay. I get that. You can take that to almost any legislator and he can understand what you're talking about. And that's why Congress and, and our state legislature has responded the way they have. The bad news about that is today, that's expensive. Today, you can buy credits from Climeworks, uh, the Swiss company that's doing this. They'll cost you about $1,000 a ton. And believe it or not, they are sold out. <laughs> Plenty of companies that want to buy credits at $1,000 a ton. When we assessed this, though, we said, after there's enough capacity build out, what do we think those prices can come down to? And we think in our best engineering judgment that that price is something around $200 a ton after you've built at least 30 million tons a year of capacity. That's a lot 
these, these facilities are billion dollar facilities per million tons. So that's a lot of investment to get there, but we think the cost can come down to about $200 a ton. But you'll notice that that's already much higher than everything else on this graph. So good news is we can supply as much direct air capture as we need. Bad news is it's gonna be more expensive than other things. In between, there's a whole bunch of stuff that you haven't seen before. Things that are based on using the biomass that already exists, waste biomass, not new biomass. But in California, we have 55 million tons per year of material that the sun and plants stored carbon in recently in the last couple of years, either in wood or paper or you know, trash in forest materials that we're now clearing from our forests to reduce fire hazard and trash from the big cities in Southern California, 55 million tons of material that contains carbon, if we don't let it return to the atmosphere, constitutes negative emissions. And so we looked at all the technologies that could be used to keep that from returning to the atmosphere. And we have a range of them here. There's a whole bunch of different scenarios you can use, but what we found fundamentally is that converting those materials into hydrogen which Josh is going to talk about, uh, is the, the, winner, the clear winner in terms of economics and environmental benefit. The economics, because the hydrogen is a really valuable fuel, as you all know, if you're buying hydrogen today. And, and secondly, that it, uh, by processing a, a something like wood chips to, to make hydrogen, you get all the carbon out of it. And so you get the most carbon to remove from the air. So you get the most benefit for doing that. And the cost of these things, the net cost, so you offset the cost of doing this process with the value of selling the hydrogen. These numbers are 20, 30 to $60 or $70 a ton. If you follow carbon capture, you're going to notice those are really low numbers, very manageable numbers. The overall average for this, for the state of California, would be $8 billion to achieve everything you see on this you wouldn't even notice $8 billion in the economy of California. That's three-tenths of 1% of our GDP. We spend 3%, 10 times that, taking out the trash. It's the same exact problem that we have. We, we don't throw our trash in the street in Livermore. You don't hear either. Why? Because it's not the environment we want to live in. And this is the same thing we're going to have here. We're going to have to do that job. We coined a new term to talk about this center. We call it bikers. In the, if you're familiar with the IPCC models, you'll hear something called BEX, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. We de-emphasize the energy part of this problem. The energy provides some value, but we don't run our economy on wood for good reason. It's not a very good energy source. But these central options here are terrific carbon sources. If you take wood chips out of the forest that we're clearing 15 million tons of wood chips we're gonna take out of the forest to, to clear for fire control. That's half carbon by weight, half carbon by weight. And so now you can obtain an enormous amount of carbon out of the atmosphere and the energy value is relatively small. It's the carbon value that's important. And today, at today's carbon prices in California, the energy that you would get out of this, whether it's hydrogen or, or jet fuel, or anything you might make out of this, the uh, energy is about half the value of the CO2. And so as people start making these, these 
uh, biofuel plants. We keep harping on it. You've got to capture that CO2. Half the carbon that goes into a jet fuel plant, for instance, <clears throat> leaves as CO2, not as jet fuel. Capture that CO2. It's worth more money to you than the jet fuel. And people are beginning to hear that message and they're going to be doing it here in Kern County because you've got the storage. In this report, we basically went through all the, the different pathways that we could identify that made sense in engineering terms and that we were able to identify today. There's many new things out there today that we can't as engineers analyze yet. They're great ideas, but we can't put a cost on them. Can't tell you what the capacity would be. But we an analyzed all these different series and we went through the entire chain from if you're starting with forest biomass, starting with forest up in, the, in Northern California, taking it through to storage deep underground in geologic formations. And what we find is there are four places in California that we really need to pay attention to as a result of this, the forests. If you wanna get attention in Sacramento for this topic, start with forest biomass because everybody knows that we need to solve that fire problem and that removing 15 million tons of uh, wood and then letting it burn is not solving anybody's problem. <laughs> that this is a really good source. And I'm proud to say that the state is starting a uh, demonstration program, putting $50 million into a plant to convert that wood into hydrogen and with CO2 storage. Uh, Steve Boland is, is, had, had some help in doing it. Raise your hand there, Steve. Steve, Steve has, has, was at the state, has now returned to the lab. But if you wanna ask him, ask questions about that program, Steve can you know fail to answer them as well as any of us, sorry. Um, the second thing is the agricultural core. There's another 15 million tons of agri-waste. Um, you guys are all familiar with a million tons of almond shells a year, a million tons. I like my almonds, but I didn't know there was that much. Um, that's gonna be really important here in Bakersfield, of course. In Kern County, the ability of, to transition the existing industry, to draw on that industry, to grow this thing quickly, Remember, time is of the essence. We don't have a lot of time to do this. So you've got to go places where people know how to do this job and have the geology and have the infrastructure and have the will to do this job. And that's going to be here. Finally, the last place that we're really interested in is the Salton Sea, because the Salton Sea has an enormous amount of energy available in the form of unused geothermal, which is kind of surprising as much geothermal as they built down there. But we think there's about five gigawatts of unused heat down there. And that can be used to drive, in particular, direct air capture, which runs on heat. There's no reason to make solar panels and then make electricity and then turn that into heat and use that to run the direct air capture process when you can just go direct for salt and sea heat. And that's going to couple to Kern County because this is, believe it or not, the closest storage to those. So if you build direct air capture plants uh, in the salt and sea, it's going to have to be stored here. All of this is gonna be a huge change in the industry, you know, a giant lift and getting it right this time, not challenging uh, you know, the, the environmental justice issues that we all know we haven't done too well on in the initial energy transition is gonna be really important. And now Kim Mayfield is gonna come up and tell you about what we're thinking about how to do that in the best possible way. Kim. Good 
Thank you, Roger, for being uh, the world's toughest act ever to follow. <laughs> uh, so my name is Kim Mayfield, and I work with Roger and the rest of all of us here at the Carbon Initiative at Lawrence Livermore National Labs. Um, and I will be continuing on with the talk, taking more of a localized view of uh, Kern County and its role in uh, carbon capture and storage. So first, I wanted to mention that this Getting to Neutral report has been incre incredibly pivotal. It's uh, what Roger forwarded me the moment that he said, hey, you should come work at Livermore. And this came out in January of 2020. And these feel like two of the fastest years ever because a lot has happened since then. So once California's Getting to Neutral report came out, well, then it kind of begs the question, can other states or other entities follow the same method and also roadmap themselves to net neutral? And for that, the answer is yes. Uh, so the Microsoft Corporation partnered with Lawrence Livermore National Labs. This was a report uh, written for Microsoft. It's a early corporate buyer's guide. It was led by one of our scientists, Dr. Uh, Brianna Schmidt at Lawrence Livermore National Labs. And what this was is that there's a lot of companies, uh, Microsoft is one of them, and they are very interested in trying to do the right thing in getting carbon storage for all the different legacy emissions that they have over time. And they said, you know, the carbon marketplaces, they're very confusing. We want something that's going to be durable, high quality. We're willing to pay for it. Like Roger said, you know, Climeworks is already sold out. So we want high quality CO2 removal credits. And one of the major outcomes from this report is the importance that geologic carbon storage is going to be playing. So one of the key reasons for this is that it is auditable. You can, with the pumping and the storage and it going so deep underground in geology that we know is capable of holding the CO2 for millennia, this is a huge benefit when it comes to a company that's looking to you to say, we want the CO2 out of the atmosphere, but we want it to stay out for a very long time. And we want to feel assured by that. We want to be able to tell people why we can feel sure about that. And so here is one of the figures from the report. Uh, here you're looking at the light blue in this nationwide map is Ceylon aquifers, which are an uh, important feature when it comes to geologic carbon storage. And then you have these kind of hatched heat marks where you have the gray all the way up to the red. And red is a good thing in this graph. So you have the Gulf Coast is obviously quite highlighted here. But then if you look over to California, the entire West Coast, you see that the San Joaquin Valley and Kern County are really two exceptional locations. So when you have all of these different companies and they're looking for where can we put our legacy carbon emissions? Where can we get those sequestered from and where can we store them securely? The attention really does quickly go to the Valley and Kern County for this reason. So on the West Coast, kind of the best, uh, the best in the game out here. And now this is getting even larger. So uh, Dr. Jennifer Petridge here in the audience today is leading this national getting to neutral effort. So in the national getting to neutral effort, this is being uh, funded by the Department of Energy. And they said, all right, well, you did it for California. You did it for Microsoft. Now do it for the entire nation. So here we have regions of opportunity color-coded. So you have 
And by regions of opportunity, what we're looking at is really that bikers technology. So remember what Roger was talking about earlier, where you're taking that waste biomass and you're converting it into essentially a CO2 and a liquid hydrogen stream. So the production of liquid hydrogen and then the storage of carbon dioxide. So in this graph, you're looking at regions of opportunity in the dark teal with the highest region of opportunity being where you have a lot of waste biomass abundance with local geologic carbon storage. So remember the transport is something that you would really like to minimize when it comes to getting the most bang for your buck for uh, geologic carbon storage and carbon sequestration. So over here, you're looking at the entire country. You know, we have some lower areas of uh, opportunity up there in Montana, some kind of medium range ones over here, the Gulf Coast exceptionally high, but what I think that we all want to focus on here is the San Joaquin Valley and Kern County. It is an exceptional region of opportunity, not just on the local scale for California and the California getting to neutral report, but even on the national scale, this is a really exceptional location when it comes to geologic carbon storage. And I think that a lot of people have already noticed it. And obviously we're all here together to talk about how to make this into a reality. And when it comes to making it a reality, I think that it's very important that, of course, we look at the win-win situations, right? So where uh, local governments, where Kern County can benefit, where uh, companies can have collaborations to really improve um, their carbon dioxide emissions. But what's also really important here is a win-win-win situation. So where you also make sure that you're collaborating with community partners, and you're getting the most benefit for residents and locals of that community. So if we look at Kern County and Bakersfield specifically, there's three, there's really three different resources that we can kind of break some of this down to. So the geologic storage, I think that we all understand by now that this is really exceptional here. The agricultural resources, so like what Roger was talking about, all of the different shells, um, all of the agricultural waste, and then livestock resources. So we're also gonna jump into this, which I feel like isn't a topic that we've discussed terribly much at length, but you're gonna get a quick crash course in it here. And if we all have driven by Bakersfield, we do know that there are livestock resources here that are incredibly abundant. Um, and it's important to take this as an opportunity to use geologic carbon storage, bikers technology, and apply it in a way that benefits everybody in the entire community and do this in the most equitable way moving forward, because this way it will really take off. And this can be an example for the rest of the nation to follow by. So when it comes to geologic storage, we have spoken a lot about job creation. So taking a look at different data sets, for example, this one here just happens to be median household income. So getting those good jobs to the places that they're needed and working with individuals in the places. These are gonna be good jobs that are created from geologic carbon storage and working with individuals where this can really lift up their socioeconomic status. You want to be able to do the retraining, right? So offering uh, opportunities for people that are interested in getting into this sector, but may currently not have the background. And then really working with communities. I know that the Department of Energy has been working a lot with this to see how communities, individual neighborhoods even envision their role in carbon removal and storage, because we do all have a role to play, um, even if we don't immediately realize it. 
And next is agricultural resources. So when it comes to agricultural resources, we have a lot of opportunities here for improvement of the health of our residents. So this is a map of a particulate air quality. In this case, it's particulate matter, 2.5 microns, incredibly small, smaller than any human hair. And this type of air pollution, we have the gray background levels plotted for the rest of California. And then as it becomes darker blue, you see that there's a lot more particulate air quality. If you all attempted to go and look at mountain ranges today, then maybe you have an idea of what that can look like with that haze. So this is associated with a lot of health disparities for our residents. We have asthma, lung function, irregular heartbeats, heart attacks, and then sometimes premature death. This is all just from the EPA when it comes to what they're trying to tackle and the California Air Resources Board for um, particulate air quality. And one of the ways that particulate air quality gets into, one of the ways that particles, these fine particles get up into the air is through agricultural burning. So I do know that recently California illegalized the outdoor burning of agricultural waste. And so the hope is that through this bikers technology that Roger was speaking so much about, then you'll have a decrease in the amount of particle air pollution that's actually getting up into our air and then for all of us to breathe in. So this is an important opportunity that should be taken advantage of to improve the health, the cardiac and the lung health for our residents. And then livestock resources. So this is something that perhaps is a little on the newer side and hasn't been talked about terribly much. But what happened is as a part of the National Getting to Neutral Report, we started looking into uh, nitrate concentrations in local groundwater. So here you have a map of the Central California region and you're looking at nitrate concentrations from the US Geological Survey and you have green being the relatively background nitrate concentrations and purple being the elevated concentrations. So nitrate in groundwater, this uh, is the feedstock area that we have circled right around it. And this is where you have an economically viable source of livestock manure. So this is that third variable that I was discussing. And what this means is that for $65 per, per uh, ton of CO2 equivalent, you can actually get manure from anywhere in this region. And manure tends to be one of the big contributors to high nitrate concentrations in local groundwater. And high nitrate concentrations can cause a lot of issues for mostly uh, fetal and infant health risks, such as blue baby syndrome is generally the, uh, the most famous one of these. But how it gets into the groundwater is it can come from direct fertilizer application, but it can also come from manure sitting on land and then slowly over time leaching into the local groundwater aquifer. And then we pull it out with our tap water. And Biker's technology doesn't only need the woody biomass. It can also be done with an added anaerobic uh, digester step. It can be done with manure. So you can get that same CO2 stream production. You can get that same liquid hydrogen production stream then sequester that CO2 underground. But in this case, just changing the feedstock. So the nice thing about Biker's technology is that it is flexible. We have a lot of technological advancements 
I was excited to see at the CSUV's poster session last night, there was actually an internship opportunity here for students, specifically working on these types of problems. And this provides us the opportunity to not only sequester more carbon, avoid methane emissions from all of these different manure resources, but then also improve our local groundwater quality and the health for residents. So with that, I would say that Kern County's growth in the carbon management sector has an obviously large amount to benefit from if it takes an equitable approach and really involves all the different communities that are here. And it's not just me, the Department of Energy has also recognized that this is a huge area of opportunity. So the Department of Energy actually just awarded 22 community LEAP grants across the nation. So 22 for the entire nation and Kern County and Bakersfield is the only location to receive two of these grants. This is exceptional on every national scale. And the reason why it was awarded two is one of them being the fossil fuel community that's here, but then also these environmental justice concerns when it comes to the air and water quality pollution here in Kern County. So the Department of Energy is looking that everybody is looking to Kern County as an example. And I think that Kern County is really set up to serve as a leader in this space. And we at Lawrence Livermore National Labs are just looking to be helpful and partner in any way that we can. And we appreciate you inviting us here today. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.